I've chosen for our section of God's Word this evening just a few verses from the fourth chapter of Colossians. If you would turn there in your pew Bibles. Colossians chapter 4, I'll begin reading at verse 2. Verse 2 through 6 is our text this evening. As we focus our attention uh, upon the opportunities that we have as believers to evangelize our neighbors. The focus tonight is on local evangelism. This is God's holy word. Please follow along as I read Colossians 4, beginning at verse 2. These are Paul's final instructions to the church, and he says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Here we end God's reading of God's Word this evening. Well, we've had a wonderful week together as a congregation focusing our attention uh, on uh, not only foreign mission works, but also local evangelism. And it's fitting for us to take some time as a congregation to focus our attention on the work of missions throughout the world. It gives us an opportunity uh, to rejoice with one another, as we hear stories about how the gospel is going uh, forth to the, to the four corners of the earth, how that powerful message of salvation by grace through faith in Christ is, is transforming human beings. It's good for us to rejoice in that. Our, our hearts are warmed as well by the opportunity to give monetary support uh, to further these mission works. But as we come to the end of a week like this, some of us might also struggle uh, with a sense, perhaps, of dissatisfaction when we think about the fact that not all of us have been called to what might be termed frontline evangelism. We realize that God has called all of us as a priesthood of believers to contribute to His mission in the world, but some of us might wonder, what is that task exactly? How does that look in my life? How can we evangelize to um, outsiders, those who are outside the Christian family? How can we evangelize them, those who are here at home, in our everyday life, in both direct and indirect ways? What's my mission as a Christian here in 21st century America? Well, I think this passage, these few verses here from Colossians chapter 4, uh, give us some direction. They give us some answers to those good questions, but they also give us some wonderful encouragement as we think about our mission to the world. As you noted, uh, Paul writes this letter as a prisoner. He's suffering in a Roman prison at this time, and yet, although he is in chains, you notice that he is positive. He's happy. He's rejoicing because the gospel is not chained. He might be in chains, but the gospel is not. 
and he can rejoice that the good news of Jesus Christ is still going forth in the world as the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. But he rejoices in particular, you notice, that the Colossian Christians can share in his mission in several important ways. In the first part of these verses, verses 2 through 4 roughly, Paul describes an important and a powerful way in which believers can engage in evangelism, albeit in an indirect way, that is by praying diligently for God's appointed spokesman, for God's missionary servants. In the second part of this passage, in verses 5 through 6, Paul describes how we can directly evangelize the lost by living wisely and with salty speech. And whereas we are tempted to think that evangelism is simply the task of trained professionals, Paul's inspired letter, his final instructions to the Colossians teach us, no, we also have a mission to our local community. As we seek to relate to those outside the church, as we, as we reach out to our fellow citizens with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So we're going to notice both opportunities for indirect and direct evangelism uh, among our neighbors tonight. First of all, uh, indirect evangelism uh, as prayer for the Word. Paul concludes his letter here in chapter 4 by pleading, urging the Colossians to pray. To pray not only for him, to not only pray for him and his missionary companions, but most importantly, to pray for an open door, open access for the Word. And you notice here that, that Paul almost uses uh, military imagery to capture the urgency, the importance of believers' prayer for gospel mission. He says in verse 2, continue steadfastly, being watchful as you pray. And before we look at that more closely, it, it's valuable to notice that that's appropriate. That's an appropriate way for us to think about our service of prayer as Christians. Sometimes we mistakenly think that prayer is sort of a, um, an easy intercom, kind of a casual intercom between us and God through which we can get our personal domestic needs figured out and provided. You know, we think of prayer as kind of like that old dumbwaiter lift that can get us what we want from God's well-stocked kitchen. But that's not really the biblical picture of prayer. That's not Paul's understanding of prayer here that, that he paints. One theologian says, the prayer of God's saints is more like a walkie-talkie for spiritual battlefields. It's the critical link between active soldiers and their command headquarters where all the firepower and the strategic wisdom is found. And so Paul says, continue steadfastly, be watchful, be on guard, be alert. Here's what's going on as Paul writes to the Colossians. Paul and Timothy, as well as their companions Aristarchus and Epaphras, are engaged in a fierce spiritual battle for the souls of men. But Paul and Aristarchus have been captured. They're in prison. They're prisoners of war for the gospel. 
But though all seems lost, Paul is able to smuggle out a letter out of the prison camp to some of the fellow soldiers stationed behind the front lines, and that's the Colossians. And in this letter, he urges them to get on their walkie-talkie, to call command headquarters and ask headquarters to fire a missile that will blast open a door in the prison wall so that Paul and his missionary companions can get on with their mission to release people from the power of Satan and bring them to God. That's Paul's request for prayer among the Colossians. And what's important in all of this, first of all, it's this, that the soldiers behind the front lines, the Colossians with their walkie-talkie of prayer, are crucial to the success of evangelism on the front lines. Prayer sometimes to us might seem like a, a faint substitute for evangelism. We might say, I, I don't have the gifts of evangelism, but at least I can pray as if that's just a frail and weak substitute. Paul says it's necessary, it's effective for the success of gospel missions, not only locally but around the world. That's Paul's initial point. Pray for us, because in so doing, you are involved at least indirectly with the work of frontline evangelism. But Paul goes into more detail here about how the uh, Christians should pray, and what they should pray for. Those are two things we want to notice together. First, how should we pray on behalf of gospel missions? And then, what should we be praying for? First, how should we pray? What attitudes should characterize our prayer for gospel missions? First, Paul says in verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Saints of God, if you want to have a crucial role in the spread of the gospel around the world, if you want to have a crucial role in the great spiritual warfare that characterizes our life, as the kingdom of Christ goes head to head with the kingdom of Satan through the power of the gospel, Paul says, then you must actively persist in prayer. The petitionary prayer of the Christian should never be casual. It should never be merely occasional. It should be regular, continuous, habitual. Prayer to our Heavenly Father for the needs of the church, for the cause of evangelism around the world, is not a chore. It's not something to be checked off at the end of the day. Prayer is a lifestyle. Prayer is a lifestyle. Prayer ought to be a standard feature of the Christian life. And so Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Secondly, how should we pray? Paul urges us, secondly, to be watchful in it, to be watchful in prayer. Here again, we notice the military imagery that Paul evokes to describe Christian prayer for missions. He, he reminds us that there is an enemy out there. There's an enemy, the devil, who, who desires nothing more than to interrupt our prayers on behalf of Christ's mission to the world. In 1 Peter 5, we're told that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And that's why Peter says to the Christians, be sober-minded, don't be naive. 
Be alert. Be on your guard against Satan's attacks and against his tactics. Don't let him put you to sleep with an apathy for the gospel. Don't let him put you to sleep with an apathy for those Christians who are suffering around the world. Don't let him clutter your airwaves with non-essential worldly concerns which distract you from things that are eternal. Don't listen to the devil's propaganda to give up and give in. Be watchful in prayer. Be on guard. Put on, as he says later in Ephesians 6, put on the protective armor of God and hold it all together with prayer so that you may guard against the evil one so that the feet of gospel missions continues to march on. Vigilance, watchfulness in prayer, Paul says, is the mark of Christian maturity. As we press on in support of Christ's kingdom, as we anticipate Christ's return and the completion of our redemption as well. How should we pray for gospel missions? Finally, he says, with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. As I said earlier, we sometimes regard prayer simply as a means of acquiring personal gain. We list all of the goodies that we want and we bring those to the Lord. But it's genuine thanksgiving that truly leavens our prayer so that it's not merely a selfish pleading for personal desires, but it's an expression of gratitude to God for His steadfast love and mercy and faithfulness to us. How wonderful it is that in the midst of the spiritual warfare that we all face, that we can rejoice, we can be thankful in prayer that the battle belongs to the Lord. We can be thankful that the skirmishes between Christ and Satan during His entire ministry in the garden, in Gethsemane, on the cross, at the empty tomb, all of those skirmishes have already been won by Christ. We can rejoice as we pray to God with the knowledge that He has already won. He is victorious, and the future for His church is certain, and it's a victory. And so thankfulness is not just the manner of our prayer, it's what stimulates our prayer as well. So Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. That's what should characterize our prayer uh, for gospel missions. But what should we be praying for on behalf of gospel missions? Tell, Paul tells us at least three things that we can pray for as we seek to support frontline evangelism. First, he says we should pray for those who are engaged in direct gospel warfare as their permanent vocation. We should pray for the soldiers on the front line. He says in verse 3, at the same time, pray also for us. Pray for us. All of us, of course, are called to evangelize in some measure. We're all called to pray for gospel missions, this is true, but we also recognize that, that not all soldiers have the same assignment on the battlefield. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, Paul writes that God gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up 
the body of Christ. Christ has given for the good of His church, for the nourishment of His church. He's given specific spiritual gifts to certain people in the church whose primary mission is to minister the Word of God. That may be specific, but all Christian soldiers should use the instrument of prayer, he says, for the sake of these frontline evangelists. I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, tonight that our missionaries, our teachers, our elders, our pastors greatly need and appreciate your prayers for them and for us as we labor on behalf of the gospel amidst all of the temptations and the opposition of Satan. We need your prayers. Please pray for us. Pray for us by name. Pray for us for our specific needs, our specific weaknesses, our specific trials, because God uses your prayers for us specifically to strengthen us for our task. And so we should pray, he says, for uh, those on the front line. Secondly, he asks that God, that they would pray that God would open to them a door for the Word. This is something that Paul often requests in his epistles. And notice that Paul's primary request is not that they pray that his prison door would be opened. It's not as if he simply asked that his prison door would, would blast open so that he can get out, so that he can go back to his old life, so that he can be independent again. That's not his prayer. He requests an open door for the preached word. Though Paul himself is in chains, he prays that the gospel would go forth everywhere it is preached, even if it's not by him, but by others. And that needs to be our prayer as well as we pray for gospel missions, not simply that this gospel would be faithfully proclaimed here at First Chino or even in the city of Chino or in the state of California or the United States or within our familiar places of influence, but that it would make inroads among all the unreached people of the world. We need to pray for an open door for the gospel in Italy, in China, in Romania, in Israel, in Iraq, etc., etc., even as we pray for the, the work of ministry in our own backyard. We need to pray that God would prepare spokesmen, those skilled and able to preach that word faithfully, we need to pray that God would make a way for His, His powerful Word to go forth to transform human beings by whomever it is obediently preached. We need to pray that God would remove all obstacles to the faithful preaching of the gospel, that He would open a door for that Word to go forth. And finally, Paul requests that they pray, in the latter part of verse 3 and 4, that the mystery of Christ would be made clear through gospel preaching. This is sort of uh, paradoxical, perhaps. Paul says the goal of evangelism is to make a mystery clear. To make a mystery clear. But what does Paul mean by the mystery of Christ here in verse 3 and 4? Well, what he does not mean is that the message of Jesus is confusing or that it's obscure, or that it requires us to obtain some sort of higher-level knowledge or secret knowledge in order to understand 
Christ's work on earth. By using the word mystery, Paul is referring to the fact that various aspects of the gospel message were revealed in stages over time as a gradually unfolding plan of redemption. The person and the work of Christ was not revealed immediately, right after Adam and Eve fell in the garden, but it was revealed over time with ever greater clarity. Paul himself picks up on this in the first chapter of Colossians, Colossians 1, 26 and 27. He says, my duty as an apostle is to preach the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What God has finally made plain to the world to Jew and Gentile, is the mystery of Christ. The good news that, that the God-man came to earth to live a perfect life. That He came to die a sacrificial death. He came to rise victoriously from the grave. He came to justify the ungodly, both Jew and Gentile. And He is right now with the Father preparing us a place of glory to live with Him. That's the message of evangelism. That's the work of evangelism, to make that message, which has now become clear to us in Jesus Christ, to make that clear and plain to the world. And it's our task as believers to support that work by praying, by praying that this glorious mystery would be made clear to all the peoples of the earth, including our next-door neighbors. That's the most wonderful task that we have as believers. We may not be on the front lines, so to speak, but we can pray, and that prayer is powerful and effective as God's means to do His work. But secondly, we see that we also have a direct opportunity, a direct command to evangelize the outsider in our midst by wise walking and salty speech. Secondly, Paul urges the saints to engage in daily and direct evangelism where they live, where they work, where they play. And in verses 5 and 6 of our passage, he answers a question that we all often wonder about, perhaps especially during Mission Emphasis Week. We wonder, how am I, as a Christian, supposed to relate to the unbelievers in my life, my unbelieving co-workers and family members and friends? How am I supposed to relate to them? How can I directly evangelize them? I just don't have the skills. How do I do that? And I think our passage provides two answers to this important question. First, Paul says in verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Wise walking before a watching world. That's our call from God. And what does that involve? Wise walking involves knowing what to do for the glory of God at the right time and in the right way. 
It's knowing how to become, as Paul says, all things to all men, yet without compromising the holiness and the truth of God. That sounds difficult. When Jesus sent out His disciples for works of ministry, He said to them in Matthew 10, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep among the wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We directly evangelize our neighbors as we find tactful and thoughtful ways to tell them about the Lord, but without coming off as harsh and unsympathetic and arrogant. We directly evangelize our neighbors as we generously offer our time and our energy and our resources to help them when they are truly in need. We let them watch us on Sunday morning from their living room as we pile the kids into the minivan and we head off to church to show them that we we love the Lord. We are committed to His church and and His worship. We offer to pray with them during times of distress, but we politely respect their time and their space as well. When they ask us about our hope and the purpose that we demonstrate in our lives, we we tell them in our own words what Jesus has done for us. We tell them that the Lord has made all the difference in our lives, and we give a confession genuinely from our own hearts and our own minds. And when we are confronted angrily, By fools who reject God, we do not answer those fools according to their folly, but we respond in a loving, in a patient, in a humble way. In all of this, we walk wisely before our fellow man, our fellow citizens, and in that we model the truth and the grace and the love of Christ to them. We buy up, as it were, every opportunity to engage them for the sake of Christ the Lord. That's the first call, to directly evangelize the outsider. But finally, Paul says that we directly evangelize the lost by using salty speech. He says, let your speech be always gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I don't need to tell you Dutchmen that salt is the basic and one of the oldest of seasonings and the preferred one in our homes. Salt certainly perks up bland food, doesn't it? Uh, It makes uh, otherwise bland food at least uh, somewhat appealing and attractive. And Paul says that we should season our witness so that what we say about Christ, what we say about the Christian life, is as appetizing, is as appealing as possible to the outsider. We should be able as believers to offer a powerful and an attractive testimony as we share with non-Christians what Christ has done for us. Our appeal to them should be passionate. It should be heartfelt. It should be engaging. It should be stimulating. Our lives should should evidence the radical change that we have experienced through the grace of Jesus Christ. All that we do, all that we say, should, should resound with thankfulness for the grace of Christ. It's a tragic thing 
when Christians of all people can only give a bland and passionless account of what God has done for them. It's a sad thing that when our unbelieving friends and family members hear us talk about the church, it's always negative. Oh, those people I go to church with. They sure are hard to get along with. That's not making Christ, that's not making His church appealing or attractive to unbelievers. Paul says, let your speech to unbelievers be seasoned with salt. But you might say, how do I do that? I'm not an evangelist by vocation. How can I develop the ability to speak about Christ so that there's an appetizing flavor to it? How can I do that? And here's the very simple answer. By daily reminding yourself from God's Word why the gospel tastes good to you. By daily reminding yourself from God's Word why the gospel, why Christ is appealing and appetizing to you. You will grow, brothers and sisters, in your ability to speak in an appealing way about Christ as you cultivate your love for Him, as you cultivate your enjoyment of Him. You see, we, we often fail to commend Christ to our unbelieving neighbors when they ask us about Him. Why? Because we've neglected the importance of growing in our own love for Christ. We've neglected the importance of growing in our own enjoyment, our own appetite for, for Christ. It's very hard to describe in, in wonderful language. It's very hard to wax eloquent about your, your favorite gourmet meal if you've only been enjoying cheeseburgers and french fries of late. Well, it's hard to salt your speech with the appetizing flavor of Jesus when you haven't been enjoying the taste yourself. And so I encourage you, go to the Scriptures. Go to the Scriptures and encounter Him Encounter Christ and His saving work on every page. Come regularly, twice a Sunday if you can, to come under the faithful preaching of God. It's the power of God unto salvation. Is there anything better on a Sunday? That's how we come to love Christ. Talk often, frequently, with your spouse, with your children, with your family and friends about the marvelous work of the Lord in their lives. See what He has done for you. Kneel before Him continuously in prayer to express gratitude for each specific thing that He has done for you and has been for you. When we truly enjoy Christ, if we have an insatiable appetite for Him, then it will not be hard for us to give an answer for the hope that we have when our unbelieving neighbor asks. It will not be hard. Then our speech about Christ will be seasoned with salt. And so I encourage you tonight, brothers and sisters, take up the powerful tool of prayer first and foremost. Take up the tool of prayer in support of God's frontline soldiers and take it up with steadfastness. 
Take it up with watchfulness and with thanksgiving. And make the most of every opportunity. The days are short. Now is the hour of grace. Take the opportunity to witness directly to the outsider through your wise conduct, through your salty speech, so that our neighbors too might come to know the appetizing flavor of the mystery of Christ and know that their deepest longings are truly and only satisfied in Him alone. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You that we are allowed to put our hands in, as it were, as You work powerfully in the Word to draw sinners home. We thank You that we are able to witness, sometimes in indirect ways, other times in direct ways, through the powerful tool of prayer, as we pray for those on the front lines, as we steadfastly pray for an open door for the gospel, as we pray in thanksgiving for the victory that has already been won and will one day be claimed in full. We pray that we would not become apathetic with the time and the opportunities that you have given to us, but make the most of every opportunity to witness to our neighbors as we do so in a wise way, in a patient and a humble and a kind way, as we simply give a confession of what you have done for us. And also as we speak in such a way about Christ and about the Christian life and about the church in a way that makes being a Christian appetizing and beautiful and enjoyable, pleasurable. Most of all, we pray, O oh Lord, that as we look to Your Word, as we spend time with You communing in prayer, as we spend time with one another, encouraging one another in the Lord, that our love for You, our desire for You, our appetite for You would also grow. So that when our unbelieving friends come to us and say, why is your life different than mine? We can answer unhesitatingly, Christ has made all the difference in the world. He's rescued me from Satan's sin and death. He's brought me into life eternal, and it's a pleasure to live for Him. Lord, may we, may, may we be ready with that kind of genuine, heartfelt confession, with seasoned speech, with wise walking and humble prayer, that through us, Your kingdom might grow. We pray this in the name of our risen and reigning Christ. Amen. Let's turn back to our Songs of Praise books now. And we're going to sing number 26, Song for the Nations. And we'll sing stanzas one and two, the first two, and then stanza four as we stand to sing.
Saints of God, go forth now into the world to serve your risen King with this parting blessing of our God from Colossians 1, verses 9 through 10. May God bless and keep you, and may you be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Amen.